This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to a brand new show on AMI Audio called My Life in Books, where you'll find authors talking books. To introduce you to its host, Red Sale, here's AMI Audio Station Manager Andy Frank. Hi, my name is Andy Frank, and I'm the manager of AMI Audio. And for this particular episode, we're going to turn the tables on Red a little bit because it's important for you to get to know who Red Sale is. In recent AMI Audio audience surveys, you told us that you were eager to hear more audiobook-related content. Audiobooks are so much more than a fad, especially for the blind and partially sighted community that we serve here at AMI. And I'm pleased to say that we heard you and that we've taken some steps toward making that content a reality on our channel. We recently debuted AMI Audiobook Review, hosted by Ramya Muthan, a show that recommends a variety of new titles, plays reviews, plays samples, and interviews audiobook experts. And we hope that you'll tune in to AMI Audiobook Review, which releases new episodes every Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and is available in podcast format shortly after airing. And today, we're pleased to introduce another program devoted to audiobooks, but one that is completely different. It comes to us from London, England, and is created exclusively for AMI. It is called My Life in Books and is hosted by Red Sale. Welcome to AMI, Red. Thank you very much, Andy. Delighted to be here. Well, we're so thrilled to have you as part of our extended family. I'm going to do a pretty traditional little bio interview with you. We'll start at the beginning and we'll take it to where we're at today. So let's start at the beginning. Red, where are you from? So I was born in Reading, which is just outside London. Didn't spend very long there. And my parents moved to West Sussex, which is in the southeast of England, quite close to Chichester, not that far away from the sea. And that's where I spent my formative years up to about the age of 18. Beautiful, rolling countryside. Is that where you discovered your love for rock climbing? Unfortunately, it's mostly green rolling hills out there. So I started off climbing trees and haystacks and graduated to buildings. And then I discovered when I was at school that if you joined the army cadet force at school and put up with a year's square bashing and being shouted at by soldiers, then every <laughs> summer they'd take you to the Welsh mountains and they'd teach you rock climbing out there. So aged 13, I got dressed up in camouflage every Monday afternoon, suffered being shouted at and learning how to march badly. And uh, yeah, then I was just bitten by the bug as soon as I got out to the Welsh mountains and uh, haven't really looked back since. For those of us who've never climbed a rock, at least not uh, for recreation purposes, <laughs> can you explain what it what it is? What is what is the thrill of rock climbing? And uh, is is it the danger? Is it uh, is it the challenge of not having any um, you know any any net under you? Frankly, you're 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 out there on your own. You're so vulnerable doing something like rock climbing. So, how would you best describe it? I think what it is, um, when I could see, because I, I was born with sight, which is degenerated, I I would just look at anything tall and think, 
I want to stand on top of that. And then it's just a problem solving exercise. It's eating the elephant. It's breaking it down into very small manageable parts. And, and yes, it's the challenge of making yourself go vertical against gravity. And yeah, I mean, it's also a focus thing when you're rock climbing, I suppose when you're doing any hobby that is deep play, you're just utterly focused on the task in hand and you're pitting your wits against a greater force. And sometimes it goes wrong and sometimes you have to start all over again and sometimes you have to climb down. And I think it's one of those things where you know it's never going to be easy but the achievement is in the achievement is actually in the challenge even if you don't get to the top you've at least got some way there you've lived to fight another day and you come <laughs> back and you do it again better the next time i heard you say somewhere that most accidents happen on the way down is is this the case yeah, nine out of 10 climbing accidents happen on the way down. It's a little bit like nine out of 10 driving accidents happen on your way home, you know, That's within right. a <laughs> half a mile of your house. Yeah, you've, you think you've achieved it. You know, you, your mind is already in the pub with the glass of ale and the pork <laughs> scratchings, and you're just not really paying attention <laughs> and you just slip. I always try and remind myself when I get to the summit that I'm only halfway there. Pork scratchings. I had them the last time I went to the UK. I, I don't know if I'll have them again. <laughs> but they're not good for the waistline and they don't, no. they don't really taste that good either. <laughs> not that I'm uh, not that I have a particularly, you know, noteworthy diet, but that was an interesting <laughs> experience. Um, Red Sail, you uh, graduated with a degree in English from Cambridge, the Cambridge. Yes. That's such a that's such an intimidating word for many of us, you know. Someone who's a graduate from Cambridge or Oxford or one of these great schools, um, and so a degree in English, but then there was a recession upon you in the UK. So what did you do then? Well, yes, I I came out of Cambridge and thought that I would walk into a wonderful job in journalism, um, but no, as you say, there was a recession. So I spent the first six months after graduation working in a hospital mortuary. Sorry, really? That's a... <laughs> it was a dead end job. Oh dear, oh dear. Uh, I know. No, actually, oddly, I really, really enjoyed working in that hospital with other people. And do you know? I think it was a a necessary reset from potentially believing the PR that Cambridge would launch you you know, into the stratosphere in the world. I, I came from a grammar school. I didn't go to one of those big public schools like Eton or Harrow. So I'd kind of already realized that I wasn't landed gentry and destined to become the prime minister of England. <laughs> um, but I, you know, Cambridge is full of a lot of very normal people as well as those types. But you do still, you do still, think well yes you know i'm here this this is place has got an 800 year history and it it produced some of the finest poets and authors that i'd been studying 
And, and so, yeah, maybe I did think that I might become a great journalist and a great novelist. Um, but yes, I certainly came down with a bump in the mortuary, but it, it was a great leveller. It reminds you that we're all mortal at the end of the day. It paid off my overdraft and I think it just made me more human. What specific job did you do at the mortuary? Everything from collecting the formerly alive people from the wards on the hospital or from the back of an ambulance, stripping them down, washing them, laying them out ready for post-mortem, putting them in a shroud after they'd been post-mortem, putting them into the freezer, and then meeting the undertaker's wagon for the body to be taken away. Yeah, it was sobering. Um, There's a fair amount of gallows humor, as you can imagine. Um, And as far as becoming a crime writer is concerned, I suppose it was also a very good training as well. I was going to go there for sure. That must have been a good training. Uh, So I could picture you on the the many television shows where we've seen the body being ruled out and the scenes where the cops are discussing the wounds and everything like that and there's always somebody in a white coat standing a few feet away from that particular action i can see you being that person that's incredible um let's talk about rp Uh, you mentioned it earlier uh, as we were speaking when did rp make its arrival in your life at the beginning of my second year at university so i it was a couple of weeks before my 19th birthday I'd been on holiday with my mum and dad and my brother and sister out on a Greek island. And in broad daylight, I'd walked into a concrete pillar and pretty much knocked myself out. And once I'd convinced my parents that I wasn't on something, such as the local Uzo, I, <laughs> my mum just went, what, you mean you really didn't see that? And We'd always known I'd been quite short-sighted. I'd always worn glasses. And I said, no, I, I, just, I just didn't see it. So my mum worked at the same hospital that had the mortuary. And they had a, a visiting optometrist who, and she, she arranged a, an appointment for me. And he just said, he looked into my eyes uh, and said, oh, right, you've got retinitis pigmentosa. And both my mum and I went, what? And he went, oh, yeah, you know, you'll be blind by the age of 30. Oh, my. And it just came as a complete hammer blow. Yeah, as, as we just said, you know, I was 19 years old. I'd gone to Cambridge, got my first proper girlfriend. I was really quite a good rock climber by that stage. And it just completely swept the ground away from underneath me. And, I mean, after the initial shock, I got into quite a, a negative feedback loop of drinking and misbehaving and climbing things that I really shouldn't have been climbing late at night. And really, I think it took me a good 20 years to accept the news. Because at that stage, in daylight, I could still see relatively well, and I could still get around without the use of a white stick. I was quite limited at night, but of course, you know, I was going out with friends, having a few beers. If I was stumbling along, everybody just assumed I might have had one too many. So I kind of had this, 
it felt like a death sentence, to be honest, especially in the way that it was delivered, hanging over me. And and it really, yeah, it really, really wrong-footed me for, for a very long time. My guest is Red Sale. I'm on his show <laughs> interviewing Red. It's a brand new show, and it's called My Life in Books. It's going to be appearing um, monthly right here on AMI-audio. Um, and we're going to talk about the format and what Red's going to do with this show in a few minutes' time. But right now, we're just getting to know Red a little bit. Um, you mentioned earlier that, uh, of course, we talked about RP and uh, you coming to terms with it. But you also, it didn't stop you from rock climbing. This is the this is the the, the rub here, is that for a lot of people, maybe something like that would have prevented them from doing uh, what they once loved doing. And you just continue to go about it so how did you make that adjustment well initially it did stop me i mean after after the first news i got a bit silly and thought that maybe i should test my mortality so there's a a long tradition of roof climbing at cambridge university and I'd already started doing that. It's a very, very flat place, Cambridge. So there aren't any crags to go climbing on. So, so you climb the, you know, the beautiful college uh, buildings. Um, and my speciality was the Fitzwilliam Museum, which is a kind of six-story neoclassical building with a beautiful glass cupola on top. Uh, and there was just enough scaffolding up the side of it at the time to allow access to the bits that you could really climb on. And one night, possibly with one too many drinks inside me, I'd just got to the top and I was climbing down. And as we said earlier, nine out of 10 climbing accidents happen on the way down. And I just lost my footing. And I fell about 25 meters oh, and man. very narrowly missed a parapet wall. And fortunately was caught by a rather well-placed rhododendron bush and at that point as I lay there thinking that was a bit close um, I thought I've got to stop this and I couldn't really see that anybody would want to go climbing with me on rock faces anymore either because if you can't trust your sight how can you expect anybody to trust your judgment so I hung up my harness for the best part of two decades and just sulked, to be honest. Um, and it was only really when my daughter decided that she wanted to have her ninth birthday party at our local climbing wall in London that I got back into it. I, I went down there and whilst the kids were all climbing over these purpose-built walls, I was thinking, I was checking out the bumps and grooves on them and just going, oh my God, this is a really safe way, a controlled way of getting back into climbing. And there are paid instructors here who, who, who can basically help me get back into the sport that really makes me tick. And so I rather shyly went up to the, the lead instructor and said, well, would you consider teaching me to climb again? And and he said, well, why wouldn't I? And I went, well, in case you hadn't noticed, I've got a white cane and I'm blind. And he went, well, climbing's all about problem solving. And, you know, this will just make me a better teacher by 
helping to get over this barrier. And he was right. Uh, within a couple of months, I was climbing at the grade that I'd been climbing when I still had sight. And the buzz just came straight back. And then one fateful day, I happened to mention that I'd always had a yen to climb a certain rock pinnacle in Scotland. And he just rubbed his chin in his calm, thoughtful way and went, well, with a little bit of work, you could probably manage it. And that's when the adventures started all over again. You're an English major from Cambridge. So it was only natural that you were going to document something about rock climbing at some point in your life. Mm -hmm. And that led to one of your books. Tell us about that. Yeah. So the rock pinnacle that I fell in love with, which actually made me into a rock climber, is the Old Man of Hoy, which is a 137-meter-tall sea stack that sticks up straight out of the Atlantic off the coast of one of the Orkney Islands in Scotland. If you've ever been to London and seen the Gherkin building, it's roughly the mm -hmm. same shape and size as that. It's That's a, the building that people see as the pickle, or you know, Gherkin being, of course, a pickle in North America. And yeah, it's, kind it's, of, it's kind of got that shape. Yeah, <laughs> a, a, giant pickle. a green lozenge that's <laughs> <laughs> many, many stories high. <laughs> And um, yeah, I, I watched a film about the famous mountaineer Chris Bonington climbing that when I was quite a young lad and just thought my life will not be complete until I've tried climbing that. And it had always been in the back of my mind. I, I was hoping to do it um, before I was 21, um, before I discovered about retinitis pigmentosa. Anyway, so I mentioned this to Trevor, my climbing instructor, and... Yeah, I didn't realize that the little bit of work was going to involve me losing 12 kilos and learning to hang from one arm like a chimp. But I just decided that it really needed documenting. I never really thought I'd make a book out of it. I just thought I'd, I'd keep notes as I went along. But the longer the year-long preparations went on, the more and more it just became a little bit like Mr. Campbell's hero's journey. And not to say that I'm a hero, but, you know, there's, there's that journey arc for all classic fiction where you have a, a reluctant protagonist right. who goes on a journey with loyal companions and they, they have a giant to confront, such as the old man of Hoy, and they have various setbacks and they hopefully return home with a prize. And, and, after I'd completed everything, not to give you any spoilers, I just realized that it was a, a classic epic adventure and it needed to be written down as a book. And I was really struggling at the time with writing a sequel to the crime novel I'd written a couple of years before that. And it was almost as if the old man of Hoy had reached down and handed me the plot to another totally different book. And yeah, it was probably the most fun bit of writing I've ever embarked upon. And BBC took an interest, did they not? Yes, just to show that, you know, no adventure uh, can go ahead without having unintended consequences. I ended up with 
a, a film crew and carrying a radio mic because the BBC uh, radio program In Touch, which is blind person's show uh, in the UK, uh, they also wanted to cover it. So, yeah, I was briefly a star of TV and radio. Uh, it, it wasn't in the original plan, but it was lovely that they did take an interest in it and, and that it did get shown on BBC Scotland. And I think still get shown at two o'clock in the morning for the country's insomniacs. Yes, <laughs> that would be me if I was living over there. Um, you mentioned your previous work uh, called Blind Trust, which is a mystery novel. And uh, that was released, what, 2011-ish, something like that, about 10 years ago? Yeah, I've just it's just had its 10-year anniversary. So tell us a little bit about that, and uh, and then uh, once you've told us that, uh, we'll play a sample of uh, of that book. So Blind Trust is a murder mystery, a kind of how done it and a who done it that is set in northwest London, where I live, and it has a blind protagonist called Joe Wind who, like me, is losing his sight to retinitis pigmentosa. And he and his neighbour, who he's always rather fancied, start investigating a murder, well, a potential murder, a suspicious death that the police have just put down as being a suicide that has happened possibly as a result of the financial crisis of 2008-2009. And Joe and Miranda are very suspicious. They think something is going on above and beyond the financial crisis, having caused the death of somebody that they both know. And they start investigating. And I'm not going to say any more, because that would be a spoiler, but I think the genesis for it, apart from my thinking, oh, how untrusting we can be of institutions, but how trusting we can be of individuals, was also because I was in the final stage of losing my sight. I, I was just clinging on to the residual vision that I had. And I, I really wanted to put readers behind the eyes of somebody who could just about still focus on a mobile phone that needed to use a white cane. And I wanted to give them a plausible blind person as a protagonist, rather than a sonically superpowered superhero or some stricken victim that we always tend to see blind people as in fiction. And so I put them firmly behind the eyes of Joe Wind as he bumbles around <laughs> trying to solve a crime that the police don't think happened. All right, so let's hear a sample of that book. Vibrations pulsed at my thigh, but already holding my stick, Nell's hand, her violin, two gym bags and a very soggy papier-mâché globe, I didn't answer. Behind me, nine-year-old Jenny was now muttering darkly and falling further back. With hail gusting into our faces, I realised we'd reached the stretch where the pavement narrows and called over my shoulder for Jenny to keep up. My pocket buzzed twice, 
to let me know that whoever had rung had left a voicemail. Momentarily distracted, I'd forgotten about the broken paving slab. The tip of my tubular aluminium stick wedged in the crack, driving the rubber-covered handle up hard into my ribs and winding me. With crimson flashes of pain erupting through my squirming hundreds and thousands vision, I cursed Camden Council and then, as the buzzing started anew, my mobile. My stick was stuck. I set about wrenching it free, only to hear a sudden shriek from Jenny. Whipping round, I tried to focus my dim eyes on her, but was completely blinded by two enormous searchlights bearing down on us. A horn blared, and I made an instinctive lunge to gather both girls to me, only to be halted by something cold and hard. The Milky Way burst in front of me. I heard a thud, and Jenny shrieked again. What little remains of my retinas had been bleached by the headlights, but all my other senses were tracking the large vehicle as it thundered along the pavement, so close that I felt the push and suck of the air displaced by its bulk. Diesel fumes filled my nose and mouth as I screamed Jenny's name again and again, but heard no reply over the roar of its engine. Another thud, followed by a chorus of klaxons. Then the roar faded round the corner and I could hear crying. Two lots of crying. My legs buckled under the weight of relief and I hugged the two girls close to me, heedless of everything but the life within them. Daddy, you're bleeding all over my parka. Ever practical, Jenny pushed me away, glanced at the dripping cut above my right eyebrow and said... Ouch. That was Red Sail. And you're listening to, you know, a preview of sorts of his new AMI show, which is called My Life in Books. And Red is my guest today for one and only time. You will never hear my voice on this show again. <laughs> my name's Andy Frank. I'm the manager of AMI. And it's with great pride that we welcome Red into our family at AMI Audio. Um, so, Red, what is it that you love about the genre of talking books or audiobooks? Initially, it was the lifeline to an English graduate who has loved books ever since he was able to read and who felt that his greatest hobby and one of his greatest loves was being denied him by having retinitis pigmentosa. Talking books were a, a lifeline whilst I was at university and, and ever since, but they were quite hard to get hold of. There really weren't that many. And I went from relying on them as an alternative to the much-loved and well-thumbed paperbacks that I was collecting to actually realising that there is no greater treat than having somebody reading to you, having somebody bringing to life the voices of all the characters and describing things. And we're so lucky with audiobooks that they've grown out of being read by professional narrators, actors who, who love playing the entire ensemble cast. I mean, for many of the narrators that I've spoken to over the years, it's kind of their dream job. They are theatre manager. They are the entire cast. They, they get to direct everything. 
And you can hear in the best audiobooks, you can hear their enthusiasm. And I think it's actually one of the most exciting genres of literature at the moment. And I think you're beginning to see some of the authors writing books to be read out loud. And of course, that's where our books have come from. Storytelling is originally an oral tradition. You know, whether it was a Greek bard like Homer sitting down there and telling the Iliad to to an audience who were gathered round the campfire getting ready for battle, or you know, whether it was an Inuit telling the story of the great warus battle that they'd had to get the meal that's actually going to keep you going all the way through the winter. It's an oral tradition. And, and in many ways, I think it's become rather hidebound by being written down for the last couple of millennia. And in, in some ways, I think we are just now returning to the oral vocal tradition of storytelling. So let's talk about this show that we're previewing by getting to know you a little bit, Red. What's the format of the show going to be? Right. Well, the format of my life in books, I'm really seeking to read between the lines of an author's works and sort of riffle through their back pages. I want to start by talking about an author's most recent book because it'll be freshest in their mind and it'll probably be the one that people are going to want to read. But once we started talking about the plot and the characters and the themes, we will broaden out the discussion into their wider work. If it's part of a series, how the characters have developed through that series and what the author has discovered about those characters. Because I, I do believe that especially in fiction, it's actually partly the characters that write the books. They become part of the author. If it's non-fiction, then we'll talk about how their research has changed their view of the subject that they first found fascinating enough to investigate. And we'll talk about their journey as an author. We'll focus especially on the accessibility of the book and I will really try not to be featuring any books that are not available as an audio book. Nowadays, actually, unless it's back catalogue, I don't think there is much of an excuse for publishing a book if it's not in audio as well. But obviously, books can be accessible in different ways. With the rise of Kindle, it means that you can blow up the font to a more comfortable size. And you can also put it through a haptic brailler. So we might be dealing with books in the back catalogue that aren't initially accessible, but hopefully will be soon. And then I want to finish up by, by just digging into what makes that author really tick. And we will finish off with the books of my life section, in which I will ask my author to nominate three books that have particularly resonated with them. One from childhood or their youth, that made them fall in love with reading or want to become an author, a book to curl up with on a rainy day and reread, you know, your real comfort food book. <laughs> and finally, a book that they've read recently 
that they'd like to recommend to the listeners to read. And, you know, that might not necessarily be a favorite book, but it's the book that you just can't get out of your head, that you want to sit down with Andy Frank and discuss and just go, you've got to read this. It might be a bit Marmite, but please just tell me about it. And then we will be illustrating those choices with clips of each of those three audiobooks. And hopefully that'll make some of the listeners want to go out and read those books too. And I will really welcome any suggestions or any feedback that we can get from listeners saying, you know, that book that was recommended, I really didn't like it, but actually I read the sequel and it was much better. So yeah, it's all about starting a conversation. And, you know, I like to think of this as us gathered around the kitchen table with a pot of tea and a load of really nice biscuits and just leafing through the books and having a good conversation about books. Because I don't know about you, Andy, but most of my friends are really passionate readers. And I don't like talking about politics particularly or sport. And there's only so much you can compare my cat to your dog or my children to your children without it becoming a little bit kind of scratchy. But, you know, books we can disagree on without falling out, but we can also agree on and recommend to each other. Um, you mentioned earlier you have a segment. The second part of the show will always be the books of my life. And you mentioned the three categories uh, where you're going to be asking your guests to recommend or at least talk about three books, one that influenced their youth, one that uh, they will curl up with on a rainy day, and a recommendation to listeners. So, Red, let's start with a book that influenced your youth. I was a really early reader, and I suppose my first love in books, like so many British people and, and further afield were the books of Enid Blyton. I, I fell in love with the famous five and the castle of adventure, but the book that really made me want to become an author just really opened my eyes to the possibility of storytelling was sleeping murder by Agatha Christie. It was published posthumously in 1976. It's Miss Marple's last case. It actually was written during the Second World War when Agatha Christie was living in London during the Blitz. And she was really worried that she was going to be killed. And she wanted to leave something for her husband and her daughter. And so she wrote both Poirot's last case, Curtain, and Miss Marple's last case, Sleeping Murder, and put them away in her solicitor's vault, uh, her attorney's vault, so that they would have an income should she die prematurely. And there they rested until in 1975, I think, Curtain was published. And then posthumously, Sleeping Murder came out. Originally, she'd called it Cover Her Face, but P.D. James pinched that title for a book of hers in the late 60s. So she renamed it Sleeping Murder. And very briefly, the plot is that a young woman called Gwenda 
comes over from New Zealand, where she's been living, to look for a house for her and her recently acquired husband. And she's looking along the south coast, and she falls in love with this house called Hillside. And it really, it, it gives her a bit of a, a frisson when she sees it, and, and, and she must have it. And as she is there with the workman, having it done up for her husband to come over and live there too, she starts thinking, well, we should have a door here. And lo and behold, there used to be a door there, but it had been bricked up. And she goes, oh, well, we should have this as the nursery. And I want just this kind of wallpaper. And when they open up a cupboard, they find just that kind of wallpaper. Mm. And she starts getting cold shivers up her spine as she's coming down the staircase. So much so that actually this house that she has fallen in love with begins to spook her. So she goes up to London to get away for a few days and visit her cousin who introduces her to Miss Marple. Now, any reader of Agatha Christie will know that as soon as Miss Marple is involved, there's got to be a murder somewhere. And sure enough, there is a sleeping murder. And I'm not going to say anything else because it, it would be a plot spoiler. But rest assured that this is actually, this is Agatha Christie developing from her very early Poirot and Miss Marple mysteries into something far more psychological and for 11 or 12 year old me who pinched it from my mother's bedside table it just opened my mind to the the psychological power of writing and what you could do and how you could hide things clues and and, and just bury tension within storytelling and from the moment I read that book, I thought my life won't be complete until I've at least tried to write a murder story, which I finally managed to do in 2011. And yes, thank you very much, Agatha Christie. You could curl up at a cottage with that book, of course, but what other book would you recommend for a curl up at the shores of the Muskokas um, here in Ontario or maybe at Lake Louise in Alberta? My real comfort book, my, my book that I go back and back to, and I don't really reread much because I'm blessed with quite a good memory, but it's a book by Louis de Bernier called Notwithstanding. Now, Louis de Bernier is far better known for writing Captain Corelli's Mandolin, but this is a collection of 20 short stories that he wrote in a rather nostalgic frame of mind about the village where he grew up on the Surrey-Sussex border. Now, it's called Wormley. I know it well, because actually, funnily enough, and it's something I didn't know at the time, but my best friend lived next door to the de Bernier family. Not that we ever met when I was growing up. but <laughs> So it, it's my backyard. And he's, he's created, notwithstanding, as this lovely, ancient English village, which is not withstanding the changes that are going around it. And you get to meet the inhabitants of this village, and they are the real quirky, eccentric types that you expect to find 
actually in a Miss Marple type <laughs> mystery. So you've got the rather stern pipe smoking tweed wearing spinster who goes round blasting at squirrels with a 12 bore shotgun. You've got the old general who is beginning to suffer from dementia and keeps forgetting to put his trousers on when he <laughs> goes out to shop at the local town. You've got the, the formation of a wind quartet amongst four people who are very different people who are living in the village and who, by a series of coincidences, bump into each other and gradually discover that they all have a love of music and a, an ability to play a different instrument within a wind band. And it's just, it's whimsical, it's quite light, but it's full of the kind of characters that I grew up with in the little village that I lived in, just over the Sussex border. And it reminds me of a time that has passed, and it makes me very happy to read it. And they're just beautiful, whimsical stories. You have to read a book like that with a smile on your face. You just have to. Those characters are amazing. <laughs> so all of them, every one of them, you, you described it beautifully. We only have a couple of minutes left, Red. So tell us about a book that you would like to recommend to the listeners of this particular pilot episode of uh, your, your new show. This book won this year's Costa Book Award, which is an award presented in the UK for the best book written in the English language during the previous year. And it's a book called The Mermaid of Black Conch. It's set on a fictional little island just off Trinidad. And it's set in 1976. And it's a love story between a Rastafarian fisherman called David and a mermaid who is rather rudely hoiked out of the sea by a pair of trophy-hunting American big-game fishermen in the kind of real Hemingway types. <laughs> and they hang her up as if she's a marlin and start planning on how they're going to spend the millions of dollars that they're going to earn by selling her to a freak show or an aquarium. And David the fisherman helps rescue her. And it's a beautiful love story. It's a, it focuses on the power of love and friendship against the destructive power of jealousy and cupidity and actually of the environment as well on this Trinidad island in the corridor of the hurricanes that come in. But it also deals with post-colonial angst and jealousy, as I say. The, the poor mermaid is one of the indigenous people of the island who a few thousand years beforehand was turned from the most beautiful young girl into a mermaid as a punishment for being too pretty by her fellow villagers. So it's got a wonderful sort of mythological background to yeah. it as well. And it's one of those books that is actually quite a difficult physical read because a lot of it is in patois and the mermaid sings in her own language which is quite difficult to read visually but the 
audiobook does all the hard work for you. It's read by two wonderful narrators and it's got a lovely bit of open acoustic guitar in the background. And actually, I think the audiobook is, is probably much better than the book itself. But the book itself is absolutely amazing. And possibly rarely for book prizes, it really, really, really deserved to win the Costa Book Award. So listen to the audiobook and please email the show to let me know what you think. And what's the title of that book again? The Mermaid of Black Conch by Monique Rothy. Red Sale and I didn't have time to get into the latest documentary about Red, nor did we get a chance to talk about him receiving the Holman Prize. There is way too much about my guest Red Sale that we'll ever get into in a mere 52 minutes of conversation. But I invite you to go to redsale.com. Red spells his name R-E-D-S-Z-E-L-L. Redsale.com is the website. I'd like to thank the dynamic team behind Double Tap Canada, which is Stephen Scott, Sean Priest, and Marco Flalo, who are producing this particular show technically. And new episodes will air once a month, usually the last Sunday of the month. Interviews will be available in podcast form after the first airing. Red, congratulations and welcome to the AMI family. Andy, thank you so much for inviting me into the family. And I really cannot wait to take your chair and be the interviewer (laughs) rather than the interviewee. And you are much more qualified to be that man. Thank you very much, Red. Thank you. Check out new episodes of My Life in Books every month here on AMI-audio. Tune in Sundays at 2 p.m. Eastern or search for the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Find out more by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books. Catch you next time. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.